You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 118 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, my guest is Anna Breitenbach. And Anna is a South African-based professional animal communicator. And her goal is to raise awareness and advance the relationships among humans and non-human animals on both the personal and spiritual levels. There is an excellent documentary called Animal Communicator and it's about Anna's work and I suggest you check that out. I have a personal animal communicator story actually that happened by coincidence I guess you could say. Uh, I was in Gabon in Africa and uh, where I was staying there was this dog that was extremely sad And it behaved like it was either in shame or scared or something like that. And I asked the the guy who owned the dog what was wrong with it. And he said that it had lost a few puppies not long ago. They died at birth. And uh, so one night when I bumped into this dog uh, walking from the toilet to where I was staying, I stopped and gave it a hug and told it that, and told it that everything would be fine, everything would be okay, and I, you know, comfort gave comfort to the dog. And the next day, and for the remainder of my stay in Gabon, the dog was a completely different dog. It looked happier. It didn't uh, have his head, you know, hanging towards the ground. It, it the head was held high, and uh, it came up to people, and it, you know, behaved like a dog should behave. So I think that's what it needed. Somebody to just say that, you know, I understand you're in pain and but everything is going to be okay. So this is uh, my own personal experience of uh, communicating with an animal on a healing level. Although when, when I did this, I wasn't doing it for that purpose. Uh, I realized later that that that's what I had done but enough of my rambling let's talk to Anna so thanks for being on the podcast it's my pleasure so can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do well my name is Anna Breitenbach and I'm a telepathic interspecies communicator meaning that I connect energetically with the non-human world to try to be helpful. So a more modern term might be um, more well-known, the term of being an animal communicator. But this is not uh, animal psychology. It's not about being a behaviorist. It's about using telepathy to tune in with an animal, for example, and to find out their thoughts and feelings so that we humans can perhaps help them in many different environments and in many different in many different ways it uses uh, intuition which is natural to all of us humans so was this something that you learned or did did you just know how to do it automatically uh, no I, i had a very i had a very ordinary um, childhood you know nothing unusual no intuitive events or spending a lot of time in the wild But when I was in my late 20s and into my 30s, 
I began to have some experiences when I was out hiking or following some tracks or just sitting peacefully in nature. I started to have some feelings about the tree or the animal or the rabbit and um, some information would come to my mind that later on would be proved to, to be true. So I realized that I was getting information in some way that was not through the normal five senses. Then I researched um, this whole field to try to find out what was happening to me. I thought perhaps I'm hallucinating or have a mental illness. <laughs> but uh, when I did my research, I discovered this whole field of telepathic interspecies communication. At the time, I was living on the west coast of the U.S., and there are many teachers and courses and workshops. So I chose an institute to study through. But to answer your question, it's not uh, really about learning because this is nothing new for us humans. All of our human ancestors, the first peoples, the indigenous peoples in any continent around the world, they used to be communicating every day in these ways with their natural surroundings, with the plants and the animals. And so now, as modern humans, really do still have these capabilities within the very um, design of our brain. It is in our own human brain's blueprint. But in modern life, we just don't pay attention to intuition anymore. So I wouldn't say we have to learn it. We actually just have to remember it. We have to make our minds quiet enough to come back to remembering what is very natural and that it is those workshops and courses that I did and case studies with the Assisi International Animal Institute that helped me to, uh, let's say, exercise this muscle of intuition again, even though it is there and all of us humans, we modern humans don't use it very often, so it can become weak. So how do you receive what the animal is feeling or saying? Is it images or, or a voice or just uh, uh, intuition? It can be a combination of all of those things, and um, the, we humans shouldn't try to force a way that we receive information, because the connection is really happening on a on a quantum quantum physics level. So if I am in my heart or in my mind silently projecting a feeling or a question to an animal without using my voice, they are picking up on the energy of that question, and they would just be showing their truth or their response. The animal does not decide to send a mental image or to send a smell. Let's say I'm asking um, a, a deer in a field, you know, what is your favorite food? The deer is not deciding to send me a mental image of the, of the particular gray green of the bush, nor is the deer deciding to send me the smell of that leaf. Um, to the deer, their favorite food is just that, that reality of that bush. And on a quantum level, they are just uh, expressing the kind of full package of that answer. How I, the human, will receive that um, will depend on the internal translation process that happens within my own being. Because on an unconscious um, quantum level, I am receiving the full package of that, of that data from the deer. But the problem is that it is still unconscious. I am not mentally aware of it yet. I am not aware of the answer yet until that incoming unconscious um, energy data runs against the mental database of my stored you know, life experiences, mental images, vocabulary words, you know, smells, all my senses. 
everything that is logged in my brain. And when that incoming unconscious data finds the closest match in my brain, the first one it finds will be the will, will be the sort of uh, mental information that comes to my mind. So it may be that it finds first a mental image of a certain shape and color of green, or it might be that the first match it finds in my brain is a smell that I've experienced in my life that is the same or similar. <clears throat> so information is perceived within myself, the human, in a number of different ways. Sometimes it's mental images. If it is a word, there is no voice associated with it. So it's not like hearing a voice inside my own head. Rather, the word just suddenly is uh, as if it's floating in front of my mind's eye. So I may see the words uh, gray, green, bush. I may get a mental image of the exact, exact shape of the leaves. Or I may get a smell in my own nose of the, the smell or even the taste that that deer is tasting. And all of those are valid ways to receive the information. So intuition is the process. And the internal translation gives us this specific. And sometimes the answer does not come in the form of one of those uh, sensory you know, clues. Sometimes it is just a sudden knowing. You just suddenly know something that you didn't know the second before without it having presented in a certain, in a certain way. Does it work uh, best with mammals or does it work with all animals or insects or even... Uh, things that are not considered uh, animals like trees and flowers and things like that. Yeah, it, it really is interspecies communication, meaning that this that this interspecies flow and sharing of information is happening all the time out there in the wilds as well, between different species themselves, even with no human being involved in the dialogue. And so it does work between and with all beings. Uh, it's not easier with mammals or insects or a sea creature. There's no, there's no difference in the process or in the ease. The only thing that is maybe different with, hu with mammals is that because we humans are mammals as well, we can relate more easily to the, to the lives and to the perspectives of other mammals because we also have similar bodies and the similar five senses. So that translation process I spoke about happening internally from the quantum to the thought, you know, brain data, that translation process can be easier for us humans because we are mammals and we can relate to how a cat or a dog or a horse is seeing the world or feeling with their four legs. It can be more difficult for us humans to relate to something like an insect that if we are communicating with a bee, for example, we can literally borrow the experience telepathically of seeing the world through the compound vision like the insect's eyes are. Bees, in fact, can also see in the ultraviolet range of the color spectrum, which we humans can't. And if we're communicating with a bee about how it sees a flower, we temporarily borrow that perspective and that way of seeing of the bee, which is uh, pretty cool. <laughs> So it makes no difference the size of the animal either. And there's no less energetic intelligence in an ant than an elephant or a horse or a bacterium for that matter. And of course, it works very well with plants also. And perhaps some of your listeners will already know from just tending their own gardens or their own potted plant that uh, one sometimes gets a sense of the plant needing something or lacking something. 
And when we follow that intuition and give it that food or that water, then the plant thrives. So this this form of um, of intuitive connection is is practiced a lot, even by gardeners, even if they're not calling it that, even if they're not aware that they're telepathically communicating. Most people have already had telepathic communications with their plants or with their own pets at home. And um, they may just think it's because they know the animal very well, so it's just based on their mind's knowledge. But truly, in that moment, there is telepathy flowing a lot, a lot of the time. Yeah, if I need to pick up my cat to do something like cut its nails, I always think in my head, I'm not going to pick you up, I'm not going to pick you up, and then it doesn't run away. <laughs> yeah, we have to cover our, our thoughts, yeah, we have to because they do pick up on our thoughts. If we're just thinking about taking the cat to the vet, they go and hide, you know. Um, one thing I can say about that example you gave is it's it's very helpful if we are wanting to convey information to an animal. It's very helpful to convey the information in the in the positive rather than the sort of I'm not going to or to say to the dog, don't jump up. Because that sort of double negative on a quantum level, it actually, you know, without intending it, we are sort of sending the mental image of picking the cat up or of the dog jumping. So if we're trying to prevent a dog from jumping up and maybe hurting people, a good thing to say to them out loud in your head or just silently is to say, keep all your four four feet on the ground, four feet on the ground. And you can even back it up by sending a mental image, imagining them having all their feet on the ground. These are ways to help suggest to animals what is desirable you know, in, in the case of behavior. I always felt a bit guilty with potted plants because I always felt, are they in a cage or... Or not? Yeah, and it's a wonderful it's a wonderful awareness to have to be in 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 the kinds of relationships that are possible with those beings we share our environments with. And the the amazing thing I've learned through my work is that one cannot generalize. So when people often ask me, "Oh, yeah, how do you know how do lions feel or how do horses feel?" I just have to say you have to ask that horse or in this case, you know, that potted plant. And because it will depend on that individual's life, how they are feeling about it. And I have had plants ask me or tell me specifically where they want to be placed in the house or on the deck because of what they need, you know, what kind of light they need. They can even say what kind of companion plants they want close to them or what other environmental factors and it's wonderful to have this kind of a conscious relationship with with the beings that that share our space. You know, for I guess thousands of years when people were hunting, and you say they had used this intuition to to find the animal. You know, when you get that connection, you know, it's I imagine it's very it's an amazing experience to feel connected to a, a specific animal you're following, but then you know you have to kill it because that's why they're hunting so how um I, i've always had uh, a, a confused and confusion about this because i understand you know they use everything of the animal they don't it's not like the modern slaughterhouses of course but still how do they well what do you think about it mm. I have looked into this a lot and I've actually had the privilege of spending a week with the um, Kalahari, the sand bushmen you know, in one of their sacred hunts. And they do see a hunt as very sacred. 
what they actually do is they have a telepathic communication with uh, with that species, shall we say, before they even start to look for tracks to follow. So the night before, they may silently, through a state of prayer or um, you know, intention and telepathic connection, they would address um, as sending as a message from humans, from themselves. They would address the the you know the kudu or the dear nation in their minds and just very humbly with great reverence and explain their human need and it would have to be a genuine need not just uh, agreed <laughs> and they explain their need and they ask if it is right for one of the one of that species to show themselves if it's the right time for that one to offer its life so that they may live or be well they ask that that one may show its tracks the next morning and the next day they will set out with a with their intuition fully alive, they may come across the tracks of a hundred deer that morning, but they will just sense which one is the one that is appropriate to follow. And yes, when they track and follow and they eventually catch up with the animal, they even then still pause, stop for quite a few minutes, and they check in with that animal directly, you know, one last time to be really sure, is this okay with the soul of that one? And um, they would then, you know, would then kill it as quickly and humanely as possible. And right away they go into a thanksgiving and a prayer, you know, as the animal is breathing its last, to really thank it for its life. I've seen, I've seen this happen in the bush, and I've also seen documentary footage of similar things happening between wolves and elk, where the wolves have spent the whole day hunting, following a herd of elk, and finally, with their strategy, they have managed to separate an elk calf from the main group, and the wolves have surrounded it. By now, the wolves are tired and hungry. And the alpha wolf will look into the eyes of the baby elk, and there's this silent exchange between them, and the elk's eyes are peaceful. And then the wolves turn around and walk away, leaving the elk unharmed, and the elk calmly walks back to its mother. So, and that's because in that, in that what the Native Americans call the conversation of death, in that exchange, there was an understanding that it wasn't the right one or the right time. So there's some, there's some greater, um, there's some greater mystery unfolding. And when the humans are really in their intuition with the appropriate amount of reverence and respect and not seeing themselves as superior to other life forms, then um, everyone is acknowledged, all the beings are acknowledging their part in the dance of life. And two more things to say about that is that uh, the non-human animals really do not see death as an end of everything. Of course, survival instinct is very appropriate and relevant, and that is there firmly in place. But when the time comes for them to die for whatever reasons, they very willingly make that transition. They do see dying as a transition and a change in the state of being as opposed to an end to everything. And the second thing to add is that the hunter-gatherer peoples would follow exactly the same process with the same respect and have the same communication with any of the plants that they were going to go look for, any of the medicinal herbs or the nourishment from the vegetable and plant kingdoms. They would exactly and offer the same requests and the same process because they do not see plant life as being less important than animal life. I often think that as modern humans, we value animal life more because we ourselves are animals and that it's quite a subjective view. 
that the original peoples saw plant life as equally intelligent, with as much right to live, and they would have the same process if they are sending the women out to go looking in the valleys for some plants to harvest. Uh, it was a very different way of being in relationship with even our food and, and honoring it in many ways, unlike today, the slaughterhouses and the factory farming where we where we put these things out of our sight so we don't have to feel guilty about it. And we subject animals and monoculture crops and plants. <laughs> we subject them to the most awful, unnatural lives and then the most uh, disrespectful deaths. And I can tell you that um, that rows of corn in a field are as traumatized by being genetically modified or having pesticides sprayed on them. They are as traumatized as the chickens in the batteries around the world or the cows in intensive farming. There's no difference in intelligence at all between plants and animals. It's just that uh, intelligence will show up in different form depending on that species. You kind of answered my next question, but because I was going to say, well, if a lion asks a human if he could eat him, he would probably say no. But I guess he says no because he has he's afraid of of death then of the transition. Exactly, exactly. And um, in some of the old cultures, and um, and when it when it was still allowed, um, village dwelling, you know, um, grounded people would, if they knew their death was coming through illness or old age, they would, with the blessing of and full knowledge of the human village, they would walk out into the wilds and and lay themselves down somewhere um, so that they may be taken and be useful to other life forms, so that they, that they may re-enter the circle of life in a way to become food for someone. In the high Himalaya as well, uh, for example, in areas of um, Nepal and Tibet, there's the concept of the sky burial, where when someone has died, their body is taken up high. Um, and a sky burial is when the body is um, cut into smaller pieces to make it easier for raptors and other birds and other animals to feed. And that is without judgment or without attachment. Uh, it's just very, very practical. And I think it's also a wonderful example of how these these wonderful old cultures truly have regarded themselves as equal to other beings because they're living that, they're walking that talk right until the end and beyond. I always wanted that kind of burial, but unfortunately where I live, it's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same here, even in South Africa, it's illegal to die outside, basically. <laughs> it would cause all sorts of trouble for the family members and, um, yeah. Because I, I always felt that uh, cemeteries and tombstones are a bit morbid. I always felt that when, because I've had people who've died and I never had any connection with with th that place where the body is buried. Because I don't feel uh, the individual is there. It's just a shell. Exactly. It it, it is just a shell. And, and, it, and it is rather morbid because it keeps us in, it, it keeps the surviving humans in a sort of mourning the loss instead of, you know, uh, celebrating even the life of that one who has passed and also just acknowledging that, that their essence still somehow, you know, continues beyond the bodily form. The other thing about cemeteries and so on is the it's incredibly irresponsible from an environmental point of view to be, you know, occupying a, a space like that. And some frightening research came out a few years back that 
that explained how the cemeteries are not able to turn over the grave sites um, as fast as they used to. It used to be, you know, in a couple of decades, they could reuse the same site because obviously the body has decayed. These days, because of all the preservatives that is in our modern humans' food, um, dead bodies in cemeteries are not decaying fast enough. We're basically too well preserved, even after we're dead. And even the earthworms want nothing to do with us in that state. The earthworms recognize us as unhealthy <laughs> food for them. But I, I, I was in the Amazon one time and I talked to some indigenous people there and they, because I was struggling with diet, I was, you know, because I used to be vegetarian and then when I realized that uh, even everything is alive, even plants I felt like, like you said, I why is one thing more valuable than the next? So it's it's more about how the thing dies because they said that if you eat uh, like slaughterhouse meat, it you actually eating fear. Right, right. Wow. Yes, so, very good point. Yes. So it's unhealthy on, on the on an energetic level. Uh, plus, I'm sure they put in chemicals as well. But even if you ignore that, it's still. Uh, fear in the meat and maybe that's why also they hunters always say that uh, wild meat always is more nutritious and tastes better right right it is exactly it doesn't have that fear in it and and it's also um like when we're eating slaughterhouse meat we we are energetically uh, contributing to the whole situation you know our, the little choices we make every day in our consumption habits in our living habits those little choices are putting our energy to to um, yeah to different whole systems and to different relationship choices so each time we eat some slaughterhouse meat first of all it, may, it is unhealthy for us but secondly we are directly contributing financially and energetically to a continuation of immense abuse for animals and um, you know these these little things every day is how we how we are tested about um, how we are living and so it, it's not so much about the what or the belief systems or decisions it's about how in what state of being are we living you know can we when when we are irritated by a by a worm that is crawling on us or something you know some so-called pest in the house that we don't want there First of all, there's a whole question of, well, who are we to push them out? But if we do want to get rid of them, do we just flick them off onto the floor or into the basin or something? Or do we have the consideration to take the spider or the worm outside onto a leaf or an environment that will be good for it, where it can spin a new web or at least find some food? You know, can we can we do these things? Can we just for a moment put ourselves in the perspective of that other animal, that other species, and consider what they might want and need? And it can be an extra 20 seconds of our time to be helpful um, versus just remaining irritated and, and cutting connections. I find the best way with mosquitoes is when I uh, am sleeping in a country where there's mosquitoes and I start hearing a buzzing, I always go, just... Take what you need and get away, go away because it's it's quicker. It's quicker, you know. They just take it and then they leave. <laughs> yes, exactly. And um, I do the same uh, if I'm in a malaria country. Of course, I use preventative measures, but not measures that will kill them. I just put the right creams and so on on my skin. But otherwise, with mosquitoes, I actually watch them feed for the same reason. I mean, I have liters and liters of blood. I can spare a few drops, and um, 
I say that they're welcome to, you know, take what they need and then to leave. And here's the other interesting thing. When I am in that spirit of it, when I'm in that way of being and when I'm in that place of, uh, you know, sharing, then they, I can even ask them to not secrete that stuff that they do to, you know, to thin the blood because it's that thing that they secrete from their proboscis that gives us the um, antihistamine response and can make for the itchy, the itchy bite afterwards because our, you know, our body responds to that um, anticoagulant they use. So I basically strike a deal with them. I say, you're welcome to land and to drink, but please just avoid, hold back on that juice you have. You can still take my blood, just avoid secreting that, hold back on that. And it's amazing. I can watch them for the minute or two that they're feeding until their abdomen swells with my blood. I watch them fly off, and I cannot even in that moment see where they were. There's not a prickle of blood, and the skin never becomes raised or bumpy or itchy at all. But if I am having an impatient day or feeling frustrated, um, if I slip into a different state of being with the mosquitoes, they do secrete that stuff, and I do get itchy for the days that follow. So I must say the natural world is a very good mirror to us humans on, on, on who and how we're being. Do you do a lot of work with like zoos like, that have problems with their animals and you go there too? Or, or do you only work with places that are like um, cons- conservation zoos? Right. Uh, yeah, I, I really only work with more the conservation, the conservation zoos. Um, I'd be very happy to go to the zoos where the animals are treated more badly, but you can imagine that I'm not exactly invited to those places <laughs> um, because the the zookeepers or the owners, particularly those that are keeping the animals in a bad condition, um, two things. Firstly, they don't want to uh, improve the lifestyles of the animals um, and and because they're just seeing them as a way to make money from tourism or something. And secondly, Most people do not believe in this telepathic communication. They either see it as witchcraft or as some new agey, weird stuff that's not real, despite the fact that it has been proved, telepathy between humans and and animals has been proved, particularly by the scientist Rupert Sheldrake. His website is fantastic. It gives all the experiments. That's Sheldrake, S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E dot org. But um, a lot of veterinary surgeons, a lot of the majority of veterinary surgeons and zookeepers do not accept that animals have the intelligence to engage in, you know, the world in this way, or that they even feel pain the same way we do. And um, the people who are using animals will not believe in this form of communication at all. And maybe that is a bit of a shield to protect themselves mentally from ever finding out how the animals are really feeling and really suffering, because that would challenge the worldview of those humans far too much, and it would call for them to make some very significant changes. So I can tell you that 90% of the people who are involved in animals don't believe in this. And I mean everything from breeders, people who intensively breed and produce, you know, puppies for sale or cats or in the um, animal show business, horse trainers, the horse racing world, the farming world, the zoo world. There is no acceptance of animals being fully self-aware, sentient beings. Um, And I think it's a way that that those humans are avoiding looking at the issues because they would have to face what the animals are really feeling and experiencing, which would make it 
impossible if they had a conscience to continue treating them the way they do. Yeah, I I have two cats, and the first cat uh, I bought from a, an older woman, and you could tell when I visited her place that she loved her cats, and they, they were part of her family, and she sold us one of them. And then uh, we, we loved the cat so much that we want, wanted another one for it, a friend, uh, when, when we were working. So we, we found another cat at another woman's place, and when I went there, when she gave me the cat, it felt like she gave I bought a piece of thing, Like I, I did not get the same feeling, and that cat is also a bit more ed- edgy than the other one, and uh, so I, I don't regret getting the cat because it's my family now, but I regret uh, supporting that woman. Right, right. I know it, it, it is a tough one, and that's the only way we can eventually help to make a change is one by one again coming down to our choices here every day. I mean that cat is very lucky it's ended up it's ended up with you and it's also it's helped you come to this awareness that you through your podcasts and just normal conversations in daily life can now help inform other people. So don't beat yourself up about it. It's all as it's meant to be. <laughs> and indeed there's so many shelter animals who are just waiting for a home, particularly the adult animal, a- animals. You know, most people want to adopt only a cute young one. <laughs> and I find that the shelter animals, the rescued animals, are so grateful for a second chance. And they often have the strongest, most adaptable characters and personalities because they've been through a rough time, because they've maybe been abandoned before, and they have survived all of that. They are the most adaptable, the most loving the most mature um, you know, and pets to have, in my experience. But they must, the people at zoos, they still must be heartless because I've been to a zoo once when I was younger and didn't have a choice because I don't go normally. And uh, I remember I saw a polar bear and he was in a very small uh, concrete bunker. And even at that age, I could see that polar bear doesn't want to be there. So I'm th- these people must know that they're not happy because polar bears, they need big, large areas to roam, you know. Yes, yes, exactly. I think, I think these people do know on some level. And then they busy themselves, busy their minds with, you know, other, other ideas and other things to avoid feeling that for too long. And to avoid feeling it's all they, if a, if a polar bear or an animal in a zoo has got to that unfortunate place of being really dead on the inside and is just in despair and has given up hope and their eyes are dull or they're doing some sort of repetitive behavior, just weaving or rocking back and forth, then some of those zookeepers say, oh, you see that animal's just stupid or it's just bored. They'll say, oh, the animal is just bored. Instead of realizing it's really losing its mind, you know, it's had to disassociate from the experience. Um, if you know, if an animal is so unhappy that they start self-mutilating, chewing their own paws, chewing their own tails, the zookeepers will think, oh, it's just some physical problem, or you know, it's amazing the mental justifications they can come up with to shield themselves from the truth. Maybe they'd be reborn as an an animal in a zoo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Instant karma, yeah. Is there a particular animal that you just have an extra big connection with that you just connect with more than any other? I think all the big cat species, and I really don't know why, but from my first dreams I can remember at the age of two I was dreaming of lions and throughout primary school I would seek any opportunity to make 
any project we were given in any subject, I would make it about the cheetah or the lion or the tiger to the point I got into trouble with the headmistress, the principal of the school, because <laughs> no matter what subject, I was finding a way to make it about a big cat. So there's some there's some resonance between me and the big cat species. It doesn't make it any um, more difficult to communicate with other species at all, but there's definitely a big cat sort of uh, energy that um, that seems to be around me. It's you know somehow somehow a mysterious a mysterious realm, but I feel like I'm quite supported by by big cat energy. Maybe it's because my own birth sign is a Leo. Maybe that's something to do with it. Um, and maybe maybe I am just more cat-like. You know, we all have different even uh, energetic personalities or frequencies and and we resonate with you know different species or different elements even more than others the one i've always had the most problem feeling connected to is is fish <laughs> how, how how is it to, with fish for you well i i had a near drowning experience when i was three years old and i didn't know this until a hypnotherapy session as an adult but I've always been extremely scared of water and therefore don't know fish, you know, can't breathe properly when I'm swimming and so on. And so they were that whole world of what happens underwater is very, very distant to me. And and yet when I have had the cause to communicate with someone's pet fish or with some some marine biologists having issues with some environments and the fish there, yeah, it's been it's been very, very easy. I was delighted a few years back to find an article in the, in the New Scientist magazine that proved scientifically once and for all that fish do feel pain <laughs> um, because that will help people acknowledge them as intelligent. Yeah, very much so. I've actually only fished once when I was a child and it was very traumatic because when, when they pulled up the net and all the fish were lying there dying, I felt bad about it. So I started pouring pouring water on it and then uh, they told me that no, now you're torturing it because they think it's it's going to go back. But so. <laughs> oh, oh dear! Oh dear! No, it's like you can't you can't win either way. No. But you see, in that in that wisdom of of uh, being young, in the wisdom of a child, we know and we feel these things, and I'm sure this is exactly what you were feeling. And I can I can guarantee you that those fish you were pouring water on, that they were very aware telepathically, and they were feeling your helpful intentions. And so that, you know, because that is an act of compassion, and so behind the action is a compassion and a care that they would have felt and appreciated, even though the outcome was what it was, they would have felt your compassion along the way. And and animals in terrible situations or abusive or torturous situations, if just one human can just see them and send them a feeling of uh, witnessing and just unconditional love, they feel they have a better time emotionally. They feel emotionally, um, you know, more at peace, even though their circumstance may not be able to change. They truly take heart from a little bit of compassion and, and witnessing of who they truly are. So if people listening want to increase this intuition, what, what techniques can they do to, to make it better? Um, I would suggest any, any practice in your life that can help you have a quiet mind is very, very helpful. Because all we have to do to engage with our intuition is to is to shut up the very busy mind. <laughs> so any practice, um, you know, yoga, stillness, meditation, any of the movement forms, 
um, these things can all be very can be very helpful as a background practice to have because it will make one able to access a quiet space more quickly. To do actual telepathic communication, one just has to simply sit quietly, relax your body, relax your mind, and by simply bringing to mind the one you want to communicate with, um, that intention thread is built between you. And uh, yeah, it can be nice to start with just imagining some general open questions like show me who you are or show me what you need. Uh, if you are in the presence of that one, you can close your eyes so that you are not distracted by you know, input, visual input from your surroundings that your mind will want to try to interpret. It doesn't matter if you're in the presence of the one you're communicating with or not because this telepathic energy is not affected by distance or obstacles between you. Um, there's a, a lovely wise elder in this field who is responsible for bringing interspecies telepathy back to the modern world. Her name is Penelope Smith, and her website is the best I've ever seen because of all the downloadable audios and interesting articles and teaching materials and journal submissions, and it's the most robust and wonderful website for anyone who's wanting to explore this journey. She's also written a few books, uh, for everything from beginner to very advanced matters of animal soul purpose and so on. And her website is animaltalk.net. That's animaltalk, all one word, dot net. And I can't recommend it highly enough. And so, yeah, use an internet search, use it wisely to find you know, somebody that resonates with you. And my own website is animalspirit.org, O-R-G. Um, and at animalspirit.org, I also have a link to Penelope and some other resources as well. Uh, it's totally available to every single human being, so I suggest just reading more about it and starting to practice and play with it at home. It's really that accessible in everyday life. And there's also a lot uh, with you on YouTube, but you, if you Google your name... Yes, yes, the documentary, The Animal Communicator, that was made um, has a few snippets up on YouTube... There's also an hour and a half presentation I did explaining it all at Findhorn Foundation in Scotland. That is on YouTube as well. And um, within a couple of weeks, I'll be um, also launching more formally my YouTube channel, which is just simply Animal Spirit. And uh, if anyone wants to subscribe to my newsletter, they should go to the animalspirit.org website, subscribe to the free monthly newsletter there's no fees, and I also obviously keep everyone's information very private. I never sell it. And so when there are future events, whether that's an animal communication safari in these wild places in Africa that I take people, or whether it's the webinars that I offer from time to time, or the distance learning material I'm still busy developing and will be available at the end of this year, these are things that people can be notified about. Cool. Thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to chat and thank you for the great questions. Go to animalspirit.org to check out Anna's work. And now we are going to listen to Samanvaya Kirtan's track Sri Ram from the self-titled album Samanvaya Kirtan. Go to samanvayankirtan.com or samanvayankirtan.bandcamp.com if you want to hear more of their music. And Samavaya Kirtan is spelled S-A-M-A-N-V-A-Y-A-K-I-R-T-A-N. And you can find all these links in the program notes on nationalbornalchemist.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, send a donation or follow or like our social media. 
Next week, my guest is Rakur Sam, who is the world's leading experiential journalist. Stay tuned. Freedom is in the mind. Sit
Shri 